Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Full work limited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. There's plenty to celebrate in March. And ex- Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free. Today's episode is brought to you by the American Society of Magical Negroes, a fresh satirical comedy about a secret society of magical black people starring Justice Smith, David Allen Greer, Anne Lee Bogan, and Nicole Byer. As an official selection of Sundance 2024, the American Society of Magical Negroes has been heralded by critics as an uproariously sharp-edged satire and a must-see. Only in theaters this Friday. Visit the American Society of Magical Negroesfilm.com to get tickets now. Ridiculous Crime is a production of iHeartRadio. Yo, Elizabeth Dutton. Hey, Zern. I got a quick question for you. You got yeah, a second? Go ahead. Yeah. Do you know what's ridiculous? I do. I do. Well, you see me sitting here. Are you going to share it? Okay, so not a product mashup. and oh, It's not a mashup God. in any way, shape, or form. Oh, my God. Really? I know. Are really? you okay? I'm fine. Huh. We got an email from a listener named Steph. Okay. She has um, a Stuff They Don't Want You to Know code name, Tall Pockets. Huh. Okay. I like it. She wrote us the following email. Oh, hey. I just listened to the Yap Lavish episode and had to share it with all of my coworkers. I work for a company that sells collectible coins. And let me tell you, there is no shortage of dumb criminals and their attempted hijinks. Y'all had a lot of questions while going through this story, and I have some answers. Ooh, I love answers. Billionaires do make their own phone calls to brokers slash coin dealers. It's typically the dentists and lawyers who have money, but not millions or billions, that make their secretary or assistant call. Interesting. As you mentioned, they have more money than they could ever spend, so why not spend money on money? Makes sense, (laughs) C-E-N-T-S. Right? I'm so sorry. More often than not, the wealthiest customers have too much time on their hands and are just bored. They want someone to talk to, and they call up their coin salesperson. This was especially true during the pandemic. Right? Other businesses were struggling, but coin and precious metal sales went through the roof. Really? Some bought out of boredom, others to prepare for the, quote, end times. Mm. And yes, people tell us all the time that they bury their coins. That is a thing <laughs> that still it. happens. Yes. Very important. Anywho, incarcerated persons frequently tried to buy coins. We receive mail from penitentiaries at least one a week. Once we received a request to buy gold coins that was written on used dryer sheets. (laughs) We've also been told to send the bill to God. (laughs) But what about the crimes? The most common is attempted tax fraud, which we see when they try to reroute their shipment to a different state, probably with a higher tax rate, while en route. Uh, Customers would straight up tell us that's what they were doing. But tax fraud is boring. What's the IRS going to do anyway? Audit them? What gave us the biggest headache were the people taking advantage of a system in place to help disabled persons and using it to make fraudulent purchases. Hmm. Relay call scams. Hmm. If you're not familiar with relay calls, 
It's basically a service that allows deaf, hard of hearing, and deaf slash blind people to use a keyboard to place calls via an oh, operator yes. service. Heard of this. Okay. Uh, this was a way to get around recorded calls because the operator's voice was the one being recorded and would be different every time. All the information provided by the customer was typed, so the usual verbal cues and hesitations aren't visible to the salesperson. Every now and then, the operator would interrupt the call and tell us that they felt something was off or suspected a scam. We were usually tipped off that it was a relay call where the person was buying bullion and not more collectible items as it's harder to trace. I think my favorite, though, is when I was doing the identification verification for the company and I got to see the absurd fake documents that people tried passing off as real. <laughs> the best was the person who sent in a copy of her photo ID that had a picture of a 20-something blonde and listed her age as 78. <laughs> Also, her, quote, home address was a vape shop that had been only been in business for six weeks. This same woman tried buying under about 12 different aliases, but she never bothered to change the email address on the account. <laughs> yes. I knew it was you, hot little mama. <laughs> anyway, I love the show, and I really got a kick out of this story in particular. Please let me know if you have any pressing collectible coin questions, because I can promise you the answers are probably ridiculous. Yes, I got a question. So that was ridiculously cool. Mm -hmm. All of our listeners are amazing. That's super cool. And I love, you know, when they send us stuff like this. So, Steph, I got a question. Well, Professor, what's another word for pirate treasure? <laughs> booty. I think it's booty. <laughs> All right. Well, that's a damn good one. Thank you. Wasn't that good? Steph, yeah, I really yeah. like that. If you got a second, I got one for you. I sure do. Oh, excellent. Now, you and I, we both like the actor, writer, ombudsman, Steph, uh, Stephen Fry. Yes. Stephen, Stephon Fry. Yes. Stephen Fry. But if you've have you ever heard about Stephen Fry's crime career? No. Yes. So Stephen Fry, I caught this in an, a BBC interview. Uh, I transcribed this for you. Oh, thank you. They said, and I quote, or he said rather, and I quote, the emotional turmoil of adolescence kicked in and all the other things, and I ran away, and I suffered through a terrible scrape with other people's credit cards and went to prison. He went to prison? Yes. Wild, right? Oh I had gosh. no idea that Stephen Fry had street knowledge. No. I was like, no. oh, man, Stephen, where have you been? <laughs> now, when all came crashing down, it took the Bobbies, and that's British for police, mm -hmm. it took the Bobbies three months to catch up with all of the paperwork because Stephen Fry's little mad crime spree, it stretched across seven or eight counties in England. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> This is Ridiculous Crime, a podcast about absurd and outrageous capers, heists, and cons. It's always 99% murder-free and 100% ridiculous. You damn right. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Elizabeth. <laughs> remember when we drove across country and we listened to Stephen Fry's podcast? Yes. The Great Leap Years? Yes. Okay, you remember how dope that was? It was amazing. And like how smart and just like random. They just went everywhere. It's incredible. And it was really cool that I found it to put on. Yes, that is yes. true. <laughs> Points to you. <laughs> you. Also, you and I were both fans of the British quiz show QI that he hosted mm -hmm. from 2003 to 2016. Yep. Yeah, now, uh, like, do you still watch it? I've, I haven't really watched it since he stopped Occasionally. Hosting. I'll I'll check it out, but I, not with you know regularity. 
Okay. Now, I also think of him as Mycroft Holmes to Robert Downey Jr.'s Sherlock. Mm -hmm. And like that whole him swanning around the Victorian mansion, stark naked, sipping on his morning tea. (laughs) That's how I picture Stephen Fry, naked with tea. Now, I've always liked the guy, obviously, but I recently learned I liked him way more than I thought when I found out about his crime spree. So I wanted to share it with you. Yes, I'm excited. So that same BBC interviewer who I mentioned up top, Mm -hmm. uh, they asked Stephen Fry, would he be the success that he is if he hadn't gone to prison? And so Stephen Fry was like, hmm, that's a fascinating question to consider. And the actual redemptive, restorative, rehabilitative process of prison worked for him. Huh, right? Really? Yeah. So Stephen Fry agreed, and he said, and I quote, that's such an interesting question. I don't know. I, I really don't know. But as I will point out in this story, he does know. Hmm. Okay, so being the ever-eloquent Stephen Fry, when he was asked about it, he goes and he quotes from Oscar Wilde to kind of put a frame on this. And Mm -hmm. Oscar Wilde, apparently, I didn't know this, but Stephen Fry educated me. He once said, at the very moment when society should embrace you as you leave prison, having served your sentence in Britain, that is the moment when your sentence begins. Yeah. Right? So after after he serves his sentence, Stephen Fry never forgot about the people still inside. So he's like, he writes them letters. He constantly works with prison charities. It was like a really formative time for him, right? He also thought of it as a time to teach, which mm. I thought I thought of you with, which is like he goes into like that. I could open minds. I can connect with people. I can tell them about things that they have never experienced, right. which is a really interesting way to think about prison. But, you know, being Stephen Fry, he also had a great little uh, bit of humor about his time in prison. And uh, I caught him on a British nighttime chat show, uh, but the host's name was Big Nasty, because like British for big, big nasty. Sure, yeah. So Stephen Fry explained big nasty. how, and I quote, I was a turbulent and troubled teen, Mr. Nasty. I'll be honest with you. I went on a kind of borrowed credit card spree. Now, forgive my Stephen Fry impression, but there you go. So mm-hmm. Big Nasty, he was like curious about Stephen Fry's time behind bars, right? So he's like, which yard you go, right? Now, for the Americans, he's like, which prison were you in? Yeah. So, but Stephen Fry, he catches his drift. He's like, oh, the jail was called Puckle Church, which sounds, and the host Big Nasty interrupts. He's like, sounds lovely. Sounds like they play tennis, right? And Puckle like, Church? Puckle Church. And Stephen <laughs> Fry's like, actually, I think it was actually closed down down because it was a violent place. So he was like in real prison, right? So laughs all around, very British, everyone's excited. And then he goes and he sketches out for them his criminal career in bold brushstrokes. And Stephen Fry says, and I quote, I'd stolen these credit cards and I'd gone all over England, staying in hotels, buying suits. So it gives you a little idea of what we have in store for us, right? Now, he also it gets compared to by the host, Big, uh, Big Nasty. He says, <laughs> oh, mate, you're like the talented Mr. Ripley, right? And Steve Fry's all like, you know, cheesed by that one. He's like, yeah. yes, yes, I kind of was, right? And it's just like kind of cool to me because like, you know, you don't normally think of people telling them, you're just like talented Mr. Ripley. And they're all excited to be told that. Like, right. yeah, that's right. Yeah. But anyway, he's like, you know, he'd been raised and going to boarding school. And he actually compared, uh, once again, I quote from Stephen Fry, I'd been in boarding school since the age of seven. So prison was a breeze. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that just tickled me. I've never been to boarding school. Nor have I. But as I told you, the Stephen Fry was the aforementioned host of QI. And so while he was doing this talk show run, you know, explaining his time in prison, I also got to learn something from him that, um, you know, was uh, surprising, surprised me. I thought, Elizabeth, you're good with words, so I'll run this one past you. Okay. Do you know the derivation of the word poppycock? Poppycock. Uh Mm, No, I don't. According to Stephen Fry, it actually means something. It's from the Dutch, and I quote, poppycock. It means soft And we turned it into poppycock. Like, it's the most middle-class thing, a word for nonsense. Oh, poppycock. But it actually means soft 
So I was like, oh, Stephen, out there dropping turd word knowledge. I just appreciate that. So now we've all learned something new today, Elizabeth. Scatological etymology. So leaving out the Dutch words for booty fruit. Let's focus on Stephen Fry. (laughs) Now, if you'd like to learn more, there is a book about all of this. He wrote a memoir back in 97. It's called Moab is My Wash Pot. Mm-hmm. Great title. Yeah. Now, when he sat down to write his memoir, Stephen Fry had to consider how honest should he be, right? Because he has like some, as you'll find, some messed up stories. But he decided, you know what? I had a little bit of a dark past when I was an adolescent. I'm going to use humor to be able to go as far as I want into my darkness. Huh. Right? So what he says, and I quote, making light of something heavy makes it easier to bear. It is not always the right thing to do, but unending gravity is as tedious as unending levity. Hmm. I thought you'd like that. So anyway, he frames his tales in all the proper context, which is, it is meant to tell the story of a foolish period in the life of an often very foolish man. (laughs) So please bear that in mind, Elizabeth, as we dig into Stephen Fry's crime (laughs) career. Now, when he started out as a boy, like, can you imagine a young Stephen Fry? Uh, tall gang yeah boy. yeah well apparently according to one of his former schoolmasters he was quote feckless fickle flamboyant and evasive <laughs> i just i like that and uh he had another schoolmaster who called young stephen fry out for his colossal nerve and quote sheer ruddy cheek i have never met anyone to match you see i think we look back on this and it sounds so delightful and it is yes but I'm sure that if you're the teacher then dealing with this, it's oh, not delightful. Yeah. I, I, I pity all my teachers, all my yeah. former teachers. So I definitely <laughs> feel for his. Yes. Now, he also, he's like you. He was really into crossword puzzles. So mm-hmm. as a young man, he could bang out the London Times crossword puzzle. And wow. that's something a lot of adults couldn't do. Right, right. So here he is. He's this power nerd. He's like you. He's bored. He's restless. School's kind of beneath him, but it's like yeah. not really doing much for him. So unlike you, he didn't turn to punk rock. He decided to turn to being a punk ass. So Stephen Fry goes full crime, you know. But it's also kind of wild to me that he made that choice because it wasn't like he's from the streets of London. Stephen Fry was not some poor up-and-commerce striver. He wasn't an an East Ender. He wasn't some Dickensian youth. Mm -hmm. He was out there in the sticks. He grew up in rural England. And this is a world I've only ever seen in documentaries. I know nothing about rural England. That's just not, actually, it's not entirely true. I've taken trains through modern rural England, but I know nothing about yeah. 1970s rural England, yeah. which I imagine is starkly different. But anyway, what I do know, what it still exists, is all the old Victorian homes. So he grew up one of those, and just imagine it filled with spider webs and dust, and <laughs> you know, and it's a world of lawn parties and badminton and all white. This is all from his memoir, uh-huh. right? So you get a good idea. His parents, they're basically wealthy, perfectly rural English countryside types, right? All about, you know, saving face and doing the right thing and, you know, stiff yeah. upper lip, what, what. Yeah. Now, I don't know what any of this means when he was uh, saying this, but apparently Stephen Fry said about his mother, quote, she was more cheerful than Pickwick, Pollyanna, and Mrs. Tiggly Winkle on a sunny day in Happyville. I, what, does that mean anything to you? So Tiggy Winkle, Mrs. Tiggy Winkle? Yeah. Yeah, that's a Beatrix that. Potter book. I don't know. Oh, see, I I, I know like the, the rabbit story she did. Yeah, yeah. But so, then there's all she has other ones. Okay. Tale of Two Bad Mice. No. Nope. That's some good stuff right there. <laughs> Apparently I got a reading list to dude, be building on. Dude, Mrs. Tiddlywinkle? Yeah, I'm sorry. It's or un- Tiggy Winkle I Unfamiliar. Say? Yeah. Yeah. But familiarize yourself. I'm going to add it to my reading list. <laughs> you should. So, well, Stephen Fry, he apparently read it, too, because he knew all about Tiggy Winkle, compared his mom to her. I don't know. Whatever. So he compared himself, though, to a, quote, wretched 13-year-old. Mm-hmm. This I understand. <laughs> this I get. 
And he, quote, also credited his, quote, anger, his fury, his verbal arrogance, and his pride. And he turned them basically into weapons. This I also understand. <laughs> so then he also gets into his issues of identity that he, had, he was struggling with. So yeah. he's basically a nerdy, gay, Jewish kid living in rural England at a time when any one of those would pretty much put a target on your back. Right. So he's got like a neon target on his back. Yeah. Yeah. So he's like, you can see why he was angry and, you know combative, right? Mm -hmm. So he did what I did when I was a 13-year-old. He went on the attack. He decides <laughs> to become fluent with insults, quick dismissals, memorable turns of phrases. He's the one who's going to stick you with a nickname that everyone will remember. Oh, yeah. yeah. You got so, to strike first in those situations. Exactly. Exactly. So he's trying to avoid, as he quotes, all of this bullying, mockery, and rejection. So underneath all of this, though, there's still this roguish side of him mm -hmm. that is just conniving to get free of all the constraints of rural England, the bullying, you know, peer group. And so when he's 17 years old, he finally gets out there and he's like, you know what? I'm going to go get free, stretch my legs and do some criming. <laughs> nice. So he runs off on his month-long crime spree and his ticket to ride was a stolen credit card. It was a passport for him to a different life. And so much like the talented Mr. Ripley, Stephen Fry grabs onto crime with both hands and goes, give me that good life. Now, Elizabeth, mm -hmm. I would like to take a short break. Yes. And we'll dive deep into the crime spree. You ready? I'm ready. All right, back in flash. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Your tax refund belongs to you, not an identity thief. Over $6 billion in tax refunds were flagged by the IRS for possible identity theft in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. LifeLock monitors and alerts you to identity threats you may miss on your own, even if you're careful with your personal information. And if you do become the victim of tax-related identity fraud, LifeLock has U.S.-based restoration specialists ready to help solve your identity theft issues. Plus, all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package, meaning LifeLock will reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Let LifeLock help you protect your financial information so all you have to worry about is what to do with your tax refund. Go to LifeLock.com iHeart and save up to 25% your first year. That's 25% off at LifeLock.com iHeart. Identity theft protection starts here. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, 
Only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Welcome back, Elizabeth. You Thank ready you. for some more Stephen Fry action? <laughs> yes. Okay. I got some frizzle fry for you, girl. Uh-huh. Okay. We are in 1975, just to put this in okay. the time frame. And Stephen Fry, he's in school at Norfolk College of Arts and Technology. And summertime rolls around. He's contemplating what to do with his life. He feels the tug of depression pulling on both of his coat sleeves. He's been battling that throughout his adolescence. And he decides, I'm going to go visit some family friends for the summer. He backles off to this family, the Brooks family. Then he has a good you know, visit. When he goes to leave, he goes to take a coat with him. And at this time during the summer, he's basically a homeless kid. As the British say, he's sleeping rough. So uh-huh. he's outside. So he takes this coat to like go be warm, even though it is you know summer. But yeah, but nighttime, he wants to be warm. So yeah. yeah, you know. So he reaches into this coat pocket of the coat he's taken from the Brooks family. And boom, he feels a credit card. And Stephen Fry writes in his memoir, quote, I took with me Patrick Brooks Diners Club card and the Insanity really took hold. In those days, any credit card purchase under the value of 50 pounds was a simple matter of signature and a roller machine. There was no swiping and instant computer connection. I took some self-justifying comfort in the thought that as soon as the loss of the card was reported, Mr. Brooks' account would not be debited, only that of the Diner Club, Inc. But what does that mean? (laughs) Which is an excellent question in my mind. What do any of the rules of banking and credit mean? No, really? (laughs) And those rollers, oh my gosh, I remember those. Do you? Yeah, I totally yeah. remember those. I was like, dude, but the time before the credit card machines, when I was a, I worked as a Chinese delivery driver in LA, I used to have to carry one of those machines with me oh, to yeah. people's houses and like balance it on my knee, put the little like carbon paper in there, put their card in, go shunk, shunk. And then like one time I almost tried, I tried to use it as self-defense because I was convinced this person was trying to drag <laughs> me into their house. It, it was a whole thing. I, I had one of those with me at Woodstock 99. Did you? Because we were selling Mother Jones subscriptions. Oh my God, that's And wild. so I had it like in my backpack and I don't think I sold any <laughs> subscriptions. Oh my God, I got one for you. I was once at the Forest Seasons Hotel in Beverly Hills mm-hmm. delivering Chinese food and I was like, this guy, he looks damn familiar. Personal favorite of yours, it was Slash from Guns N' Roses. <gasps> no. His credit card did not say Slash, obviously. It said Saul, Hudson. whatever his last name is. Yeah, Saul Hudson, Zarin. Yes, Saul, Saul Hudson, Hudson, Zarin. like the University, Elizabeth. Yes, like... <laughs> So I saw, I recognized it at the time. I was like, oh, that's Slash. And yeah. also, he looked just like Slash. And it was just like, oh, here's Slash standing in front of you. <laughs> and he had a bottle of Jack Daniels on the table. Oh, like, my god, It was so perfect. I would have fainted. Yeah, you totally yeah, would have fainted. Would've. I had to, like, hold my breath so I could, like, stay standing. <laughs> anyway, so Stephen Fry, he's moving around with his stolen credit card in the era of the credit card machines, or before the credit card that we know of, right? Yeah. So this means it takes days, possibly weeks, for any of these slips that he's generating to get back to the company. Mm -hmm. And that also means that they, at the time, they weren't really canceling cards. If a card was stolen, they would just tell you, oh, yes, that card's stolen. <laughs> like, that, <laughs> like, all throughout this story, I find it amusing when they're like, they would tell people, oh, yes, thank you. That, that card is stolen. Like, you guys don't cancel it, but they can't because as long as the person has the card, they can oh, just keep right. going. Yeah, because there's it's not no connection saying oh, it's been denied. So as long as he keeps moving, he can Unless, keep rolling. Unless like, someone calls in while they're holding the card, then they have to get out the giant scissors and exactly. snip it. Exactly. Yes, right your big face. fear. Yes. <laughs> 
So Stephen Fry, is it basically why we have the safeguards now that we have in banking? <laughs> well, not him personally, but like but, well, let's him. Say he was. Let's yeah, say him he and is. all the other pioneers of that era. Uh-huh. Right. So Stephen Fry, he steals the coat. He's got the credit card in his pocket. Now he's got his ticket to ride. So what does he do? Stephen Fry heads off to grab him some of that crime life. And I quote from his memoir, the next few weeks passed in a kind of cacophoric, if there is such a word, a buzz, which is just to say a state of joylessly euphoric wildness. What a psychiatrist would call the upswing of manic depression or bipolar cyclothemia or however they choose to designate it now. The functional opposite, in other words, of the listless misery that had caused me to scoop up a suicidal bowl full of pills a few months earlier. Yes, like I told you, he was like going through it. Yeah. So there is this youthful episode of mania, and he decides just to go for it. Now, again, following Stephen Fry's lead, we're... I don't mean to make fun of his mental illness. I'm not trying to make light of it. I'm right. not trying to minimize it. But he takes the perspective of using some levity to counteract the gravity of the situation. Exactly. So I'm going to follow his lead, and we're just going to take this as a fun story that he looks back on as a spree de corps, if yeah. you will. Yeah. Okay. So young homeless Stephen Fry, outside, sleeping rough, decides, my credit card now, to hell with sleeping outdoors. That's his first step. <laughs> well, yeah. So, and I quote, I know that I went to London and transferred my possessions, such as they were, books mostly, from my rolled-up sleeping bag to a brand-new suitcase. I stayed for a while in the Imperial Hotel in Russell Square, applied for a job as a reader of Talking Books for the Blind, and made regular visits to the American bar of the Ritz Hotel, where I had become friends with the barman, Ron, whose passion was Renaissance painting. He could remember P.J. Wodehouse sipping a cocktail in the corner, and F. Scott Fitzgerald leaping over the bar, drunk as a skunk, snatching up a bottle of whiskey that he brandished like a woodman's axe. All kinds of juicy and wondrous moments. So he's just enjoying the hell out of life, right? He is living life. Exactly. I'm like, dude, what a way to kick (laughs) off a crime spree. So he embraces a good life, true, talented Mr. Ripley style. Yeah. And he's just doing it. And and another quote from him, I drank glasses of tomato juice and smoked Edward VII cigars in my new blue suit and felt for a while that this is where I belong. He was 17 when he... I love that. Yes, right? That's amazing. So this spot that he loves, the American bar Mm -hmm. of the Ritz Hotel, it has since been turned into a casino club. Oh. Yeah. So, but he and your man, Hugh Laurie, they go there to yes. this day to gamble. Oh, I love it. And they blow their money on blackjack now that they both have some money to lose. Right, right. And in fact, he once got kicked out because he was wearing these white Reeboks and they're like, you cannot gamble in here with those shoes. He's like, these are my lucky Reeboks. But just imagine Hugh Laurie saying it. <laughs> anyway, so uh, now that Stephen Fry is out there enjoying the lush and the plush life, He's going to get smart about it, right? He knows to keep moving. So he doesn't just, like, hole up in the hotel. So he's like, okay, where's my next stop? And so he's like, oh, I'm going to go back off to this place called Yuli. U-L-E-Y. I may be not pronouncing that correctly. Anyway, he feels that, you know, he's called to this town. Yeah. He just keeps describing it as this, like, you know, siren's call. That sure. He wants to go stepping back into the past like some kind of Proustian fantasy, yeah. right? So he writes that, quote, maybe he will find some kind of something, any kind of anything, a, a clue, an opportunity to lay an unknown ghost. What I believed I was looking for, I cannot say. I can only assert that, as in a novel, the locations with which this story climaxes are the same as the locations with which it begins. Life is sometimes novel-shaped, mocking the efforts of those authors who, in an effort to make their novels life-shaped, spurn the easy symmetry and cheap resonance of reality. That's beautiful. Right? Don't you love the <laughs> so cheap true. resonance of reality? Yes, yes. Dude, his, like, 
the language, it's like juicy as an orange cutie. I'm just like, <laughs> bro, come on with it. So he gets to Yuli, credit card in hand. He keeps it rolling, right? This is a seasonal town that he's in. I've never heard of it, but I looked it up. It's a seasonal town, so it's mostly empty when he shows up. Mm-hmm. Just a bunch of folks in the pubs hoisting pints and doing, yeah. like, you know, pub life, right? Yeah. So he's like, ah, that's not what I want. Decides to move on. So then he bounces out to the Cotswold Villages, which you may recall is the home of Jack the Shaver of Cotswold yes, Villages. Yeah, the exactly, mad cat. The cat shaver. Yeah, shaving British tabbies. <laughs> so he hits up Cotswold Villages, and uh, the ones he hits are Borton on the Water and the neighboring hamlet of Morton in the Marsh. Those are amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I just love these names. Like you got to start to like I'm you know I was born in the South and you start to hear the like British and Scottish influences in the South because mm-hmm. it's like oh yeah totally I can hear that but it'd be yeah. like in the South it'd be like well you know well, well well y'all could go down to a place called Boar Town that's over in the water you know or we go got Moor Town that's over in the swamp or, but we like to call it Marsh because we fancy you know we we got notions here right like, that's how like, I can just hear it but anyway so Stephen Fry he travels to the Cotswold villages mm-hmm. he's over there in Borton on the water and Morton in the marsh and Higgledy in the Piggledy and whatever he's doing good fortune finds him Elizabeth I know you're worried about this 17 year old scamp. He manages to get himself a bed and breakfast hotel that is exactly what he wants. So he checks into the Morton in the Marsh bed and breakfast that I, quote, I happened upon my second piece of plastic. It lay snugly in the inside pocket of a casually hung jacket in the hallway, just sitting there for anyone, anyone like me, to steal. It was an access card this time, much simpler to use, and with a signature that I could more easily reproduce than that of Patrick Brooke. So he's like, all right, card two. Let's keep it yeah, rolling. Yeah, because all they want to do is look at the back where the where you signed it. Doesn't exactly. Match. So he's reloaded, restocked, and ready to hit the road again. Oh, my God. So he's not collecting plastic like, you know, I don't know, like somebody on the Venice beach. Like, like a oh. do-gooder on the beach. <laughs> exactly. Thank you. <laughs> I couldn't think of what the word was. Do-gooder. <laughs> Do-gooder. That's what they're called. <laughs> so now his spree's going to run longer, and he's like, uh, quote, I had a suitcase, a suit I had bought in London, a few other clothes, some books, and unlimited spending power. It was time now to head for the Reading Festival. No, or Reading. Reading. Reading Festival. Now, I only know Reading from the Nirvana playing the show in 1992 uh-huh. that I watch on YouTube clips all the time. <laughs> but you Have you ever been to the Reading Festival? No, or you ever been to Reading? Do you know anything no. about it? No. Is it? I mean, I know it's a big music festival. Yeah. Is it like? Is it kind of something like, you know, the British get all excited about? Or is yeah. It just, okay. It's huge. Yeah. We hear about it. I figure it has mm-hmm. to be the, the coolest. Mm-hmm. Okay. So he heads out there. And at that time, it's like, you know this destination for basically late hit, late stage hippies you know okay. so we are in like the end of the aquarius era so they're like yeah man so what year is it that 75 75 so like okay. yeah, there's going to be a big show out at stonehenge which is apparently close to reading so that's what he's so he's on while he's like on his way on the run outlaw on his way to reading <laughs> stephen fry stops over in this nameless little town in between there and stonehenge i guess and he's like oh and he walks into what he describes as a waking nightmare oh no <laughs> yeah. so i'll lay it out for you All right. A quote. My journey to Reading was broken in a town whose name I cannot even remember. I stayed overnight in as dreary a post house hotel as you have ever seen, even in your worst nightmare. Your worst nightmare, of course, is the precise inspiration for designers of this species of hotel. So I don't know what he was like looking at, but he's like, keeps talking about like all this stuff and everything he describes. Like a poorly decorated hotel to me is my best nightmare. I'm like, that's not bad at (laughs) all. My nightmares, but for him, this is it. Now, it kind of reminded me of your dreams, like where it's just (laughs) like, oh, that's terrible. Like you're like, you get nervous and you'll tell me like a a bad dream you've had. I was like, 
oh man, I wish that nobody even had a gun. You're like, oh, you're talking about like I had to like eat something I didn't want to eat, and I was like, that's well, I think because I came into headquarters the other day and I was telling you about how I was panicked because. I had this dream where I was supposed to be swallowing antiperspirant sticks, yes, but like they sorry. weren't like deodorant. It was they were like the size of like a a Crayola marker type, <laughs> and I was supposed to have a box of them next to my bed, and I couldn't find them. And I was like, I had to do it or I'd die. And I was panicking, and then I woke up. You had to eat deodorant. Sticks. Yeah, and then I woke up, and I was looking around. I was supposed to like swallow them like a snake. And I couldn't find him, and I was like, had like about ten minutes of panic, and then I realized oh, that was a dream. I'm sure that is terrifying, but it just sounds it like a, like a cartoon to me. All right, all right. So, well, you don't have to ever swallow antiperspirant sticks. No, it hasn't come up yet. In order to live, there it has not come up yet. Oh, I've well. had to like drive buses off of bridges and then down mountains and stuff. Let's nothing. hope I'm not prescient. Like yeah, exactly. Okay. Let's hope we're both not prescient. <laughs> that bus did not fare well. Okay, well, uh, where was I? Stephen Fry, he's in his nightmare hotel. He realizes he's nearly missed a major moment in the course of his life. It's the day he legally became a man. Oh, so returning his, to his memoir, go ahead. His 18th birthday. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Not his like Jewish became a man because he's 13. <laughs> I mean, that's a legitimate point. Yeah, it would be yeah. like, wait, he already has a man. Yeah. And I'm like, OK, well, according to the law but, of yes. England in this case. Exactly. So Stephen Fry, alone in his nightmare hotel, he says, quote, it was only as I was finishing my dinner of steak and salad and beer in the dining room of this soulless assembly of melamine and artex that I realized that the date, that day, was the 24th of August, 1975, my 18th birthday. It was my 18th birthday. I had come of age here in this place. <laughs> so here he is, a man, a criming man, a yeah. man with great taste, right. and he decides, you know, I'm going to celebrate my 18th birthday like a man. So... Yeah. Alone in my room, I ordered a half bottle of whiskey from room service, and for the first time in my life, I made myself completely drunk. Drunk in the most dismal, appalling, and lonely conditions conceivable. Oh, sounds horrible. <laughs> I'm sorry. I just, I'm tickled by it because I've been there. Yeah, like, I'm oh, laughing not at him, I'm laughing with him. Exactly, I'm exactly. Like, Bro, yeah, man. That's a tough mirror to wake up to in the morning. Right? So... You know, I think Stephen Fry and I would have great fun driving around America or England, wherever. I don't care. Just visiting hotels and ripping apart their, like, ugly aesthetics. Oh, wait, no, that's you. I think you two would have great fun doing that. <laughs> okay, yes. <laughs> but because I know you like this, here I'll give you a little snippet of his... Uh, his assessment of the hotel, quote, a concrete and smoked glass traveling salesman's shakedown, an apocalypse of orange cushions, brown curtains, and elastic cornered nylon sheets. Hardly had the whiskey gone down my throat in heavily watered gulps than I added to the bathroom seek, heave after heave of sour sick. Oh. So the place makes them absolutely yeah, sick. He's nylon like, sheets, get out of here. <laughs> I, I knew you'd love that. <laughs> anyway, happy birthday, big boy, and you're now a man. Right. So... To make it a little bit more memorable, his first ever birthday away from home, out in the world alone, it was like uh, enough for him to vomit. He was like, oh, man, this is amazing. I'm a man. <laughs> <laughs> Next day, he gets up, and he's treated to his very first hangover. Oh, Bing, boy. bang, boom. And yeah. he heads off to the Reading Festival, and he takes his suitcases with him and his blue <laughs> suit and, of course, his stolen credit cards. And on his way to Reading, he hears word that I told you that people are going to the, some show in Stonehenge. Mm. He just keeps hearing about this. He's like, okay, I guess I got to go. It's the 1970s. Let's roll out <laughs> to Stonehenge. And this is prior to Spinal Tap, mind you. Yeah, so this is yeah. like 
real legit. Let's go out to Stonehenge and rock. <laughs> so Stephen Fry, he keeps bouncing around the aisle and uh, criming it up in his casual style, drinking, buying suits, shoes, whatever, enjoying shows. And then he plans to head down to Salisbury. Do you know Salisbury? Uh-huh. Okay. Only thing I know about it is it's famous for its cafeteria-beloved steak recipe. <laughs> So that's, to me, Salisbury. It's just brown sauce. It's a great cathedral there. Is there? Yeah. Okay, so not just brown sauce. Good to know. And brown sauce. Yeah. Is the cathedral, like, uh, gothic? Did you go see it? It's super goth. (laughs) Super goth. It's just It has a lot of black eyeliner on. uh, It's got purple candles. (laughs) So on the way to Salisbury, Stephen Fry, he stops in a town called Swindon. And he checks in in a, quote, grand-looking hotel in Swindon, calling itself, I think, the Wiltshire or the Wilshire Country. So it's a four-star joint. It's the perfect for place for the artist as a young criminal to rest his head. Yeah. So he checks in. It's the ninth day of September, and things are about to get spicy. Uh-oh. So let's take a little break. Yeah. And I'll be back with all the spice and dish to serve up to you. Love it. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Today's episode is brought to you by the American Society of Magical Negroes, a fresh satirical comedy about a secret society of magical black people starring Justice Smith, David Allen Greer, Anne Lee Bogan, and Nicole Byer. As an official selection of Sundance 2024, the American Society of Magical Negroes has been heralded by critics as an uproariously sharp-edged satire and a must-see. Only in theaters this Friday. Visit the American Society of Magical Negroes Film.com to get tickets now. There's plenty to celebrate in March and ex- Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free. All right, Elizabeth. Zarin. Where were we? I was just totally grooving out to some cool ads. Nice, nice. Really good. I was thinking about Salisbury steak. Yep, that too. They were ads for, do we, I think there are ads for Salisbury steak. That's all, the only ad. That's what I heard. It's all of them are Stouffer's long... Salisbury steak ads. <laughs> exactly. I asked, I asked iHeart to make sure that that's what happened. <laughs> oh, beep, boop, boop, beep. iHeart. Action item list, number one. We're a go on the Salisbury steak, guys. And they're all, go, go, go move, go. move. Yeah. 
It's cool. That's what the helicopters were from. Okay. <laughs> it's cool. So here we are in the Wiltshire County or the Wiltshire Hotel, four-star hotel, and uh, our artist as a young criminal is doing his thing. He's checked in. I told you, ninth day of September. So if you think about this, that means school's about to start back up. Oh, right. Yeah. Young yeah. people should not be wandering around and definitely not wandering around with credit cards just going, ah, put he it on the plastic. A, he is a grown-ass man now. He's exactly. <laughs> Who's looking twice? <laughs> so instead of like, you know, getting ready for school, he's out there still enjoying his stolen credit cards. And he's like, you know what? I'm a man now. I'm not stopping. So yeah, he just keeps on him. bouncing around. He is at this hotel. He decides, I'm going to check in and enjoy myself. So he checks in, and Stephen Fry, you know, gets his key, goes on up the steps. And uh, this is like, you know, by the way, the, the checking in at this point is mm-hmm. just routine for him now. He just goes up, and he's like, yes, yes, Edward Bridges. That's the fake name he's using. Yeah. And so the, and he's the reception says, like, oh, yes, uh, do, do, would you like a room, sir? And he's like, yes, a room for the night. Oh, what, what, what? And so then he's using his made-up name, and then... This is, by the way, to spare the actual gentleman the embarrassment because he was using some guy's real name. So in the book, right. he uses a fake name. Right. But in reality, yeah. he's, he's using, using that dude's guy's name. name yeah. right? So this guy, Edward Bridges, air uh-huh. quotes, Stephen Fry is like, okay, yes, take me up to my room. And he gets his key and he's going and, you know, right before he's about to go up to his room, he has to finish out. So he's doing his Edward Bridges thing. And returning to his memoir, he says, quote, The usual procedure was gone through, the signing in, the flexible friends slapping into the bracket beneath the roller, the keys handed over with a beaming smile. Charming, I said to the porter who came up with my suitcase as I surveyed the room. Quite charming. I slipped him 50 pence and laid down on the bed. Tomorrow, Stonehenge. So he's <laughs> I like, love it. Right? <laughs> I, I figured you'd be tickled by all of his hotel well, adventures. Well, it's like the thing, I would never do this myself. Like, I, mm-hmm. I could not steal a credit card no. and I could could, and I would be terrified to use it that, yes. you know, yes, special know. forces would come, you know, <laughs> rappelling down from the ceiling and then I would, I would go on my permanent record. <laughs> um, but I, I, I'm very tickled by this. Yeah. I, I'm enjoying his, his He's not escapades. really harming anybody. No. He's just out there, no. you know, criming it I up. I mean, the chances are the credit card company will back those charges out away from the yeah. owner of the card. Yeah, the I'll, holder I'll tell you all about card, that. I should say, yeah. yeah. So, you know, let's stick it to Diners Club. Who cares? <laughs> So before our hero can make it out to Stonehenge to go rocking, he makes one fatal mistake in his crime spree. He bought himself some fancy-ass shoes. Oh. Yeah. The shoes. See, but here's the issue. Stephen Fry, he had big feet. Like twelve he's a and a tall, tall fella. He's a, yeah, he, he's stretching. He's he's a long daddy, right? He's a, he is definitely a long. <laughs> in daddy. your terminology, total long daddy. <laughs> and he he wears size twelve and a half shoes, which in the English countryside they did not often have a good looking loafer available to him. So he's all excited that when he sees this one shoe shop, they carry large sizes right. and they have fancy shoes. He's like, oh man, I get myself some leather brogues. So he gives in to temptation. He steps inside, and quote. As if awaiting my arrival, a pair of thunderingly sound black semi-brogues in a perfect 12 and a half? Excellent. Capital. I walked up and down and inspected them in the angled mirror. Do you know, I said, handing over my access card and casting a rueful glance at the cracked old pair that lay on the carpet looking for all the world as if they were waiting for Godot. These fit so well, I think I'll wear them home. So he goes off to wear his bright new shiny shoes. He's all excited. And he's heading back to his four-star hotel tell and he's still basically a kid you have to yeah. always remember in this so he's oh, not yeah. realizing how people see him right but he's all 
ready to look good. And now he also he's a kid, so he's ready for some chill time and snacks. So he's yeah. like, I gotta get back to my hotel and lay down. So <laughs> he's like, quote, time now, I think, to return to the hotel for a spot of television and a plate of club sandwiches. I picked up my key from the reception desk and bounced cheerfully up the stairs. Oh. All right. So he goes to his room and there's a whole deal because there's someone in his room. And he's oh. like, ooh, that's not right. The cheek of this person. Right. right? So the nerve of you, man, my good sir. And I thought this was a four-star hotel. <laughs> what, what? And so, quote, uh, we'll take let Stephen tell it. Yeah. I unlatched the door and was surprised to see that there was a man in my room. It's all right, I said as I entered. If you can come back and clean later, I'll leave the room free for you in about an hour. Another man appeared, stepped sideways out of the bathroom. Two men in my room, both wearing gray suits. Mr. Bridges, said the first. Yes. Mr. Edward Bridges. Now, I'm guessing you know who these two men are. The Flying Squad. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Our young antihero does not. Quote, it never for a minute crossed my mind until they revealed themselves that they were anything other than strangely dressed and gendered chambermaids. We are police officers, sir. We have reason to believe that you may be using a stolen credit card, the property of a Mr. Edward Bridges of Solihull. I love that he thinks that they're room cleaners in suits. <laughs> in suits. He's like, ah, I said and smiled. All at once, a hundred thousand gallons of acid poison poured out of me, and a hundred thousand pounds of lead fell from my shoulders. So like everybody we've covered, yeah. once the lie is broken, he's like, oh, I'm set free. Yeah. So yeah, wild. Exactly. Like, you just don't anticipate that. You're like, dude, you're killing it. <laughs> but he's still feeling bad the whole time. So after he confesses that he is indeed not Edward Bridges, he's free of all of this weight of his lies, right? Yeah. And so Stephen Fry feels elated. He practically wants to hug these cops. I mean, he's just like <laughs> geeked on it, right? He, the cops tell him, if you wouldn't mind coming with us, sir, I'm arresting you now and we'll shortly make a formal charge at the station. I was so happy, so blissfully, radiantly, wildly happy that if I could have sung, I would have sung. If I, if I could have danced, I would have danced. I was free. At last, I was free. Nice. Yeah, right? Huh? <laughs> little MLK energy for that, that one. Was, that was good. So our, our less talented Mr. Ripley has finally been busted. And can you guess how he got caught? Well, how you did mentioned the cops know something to about to his the room? shoes, but I'm, I don't know. Well, he had a credit card company finally track him down. To, no. Oh. Well, perhaps someone else figured out that an 18-year-old boy in a blue suit and brand new shoes and a fistful of credit cards might be a little hanky yeah. in 1975? Yeah. Maybe. Kinda. Can you guess what it is? No. Well, as Stephen Fry gets perp-walked out of the hotel, <laughs> he gets his first hint of how he got popped, right? One of the hotel receptionists smiles at him, and it's his big, warm smile, and he's like, well, that's kind of odd, but he enjoyed it, right? And then he's perp-walked the rest of the way down the street to the cop shop, which happens to be about 30 yards away. Uh -huh. So he makes a joke about saving them the shoe leather. And then he's like, you know, once he's at the police station, he's in police custody. Stephen Fry, still all cheer, good humor. The kid's killing it, yeah, right? The cops yeah. were like, this guy's awesome. <laughs> so he's like, quote, I sat in my little police cell and I hummed a hum to myself. I imagined that once they had totted up all the depredations made on the access card, I would serve at least two years in prison. Two years in which I could do some serious writing perhaps even apply to retake my A-levels. I would emerge, newly qualified, write a postcard to my parents to let them know that everything was all right, and then start life again. Properly. <laughs> Just a reset. Right? Yeah, exactly. He's like, I need a hard reset. So Prison. So he's like, okay, now the cops come in. They yank him out of the cell, and they're like, we need to take you in the interrogation room. And now, when I say yank him, they're like, you know, hoisting him out of the chair. They're, yeah. they're not American cops. So, <laughs> so this larcenous young man gets taken in by his interrogators, 
And, quote, in the interview room, the same two officers, a detective constable and a detective sergeant, played that fiendish role game in which each of them adopts a different stance towards the accused. The version they played was nice cop and even nicer cop, each (laughs) competing with the other for the part of even nicer cop. So this is so far from my experience of police. I was like, well, I thought he was being sarcastic when I read that. I was like, oh, man, I was like waiting. He's not. They literally were competing to get the role of nicer cop. But they got what they wanted out of him. Oh, yeah, totally. No, the uh, there's a little friendly chat goes on. Stephen Fry thinks to ask one question. The question I assume you're still wondering, which is how did y'all find it? Yeah. Right. So I chewed my lower lip and pondered. There was a question that had been bugging me since my arrest. I wonder if you mind me asking you something I said. Ask away, son. Well, it's just this. How did you find me? How did we find you? Yes. I mean, there you were in my hotel room. So the cops were only happy to explain to him. They're, they're kind of tickled by this like, yeah. really smart 18-year-old. They're like, it was your shoes, son. My shoes. Now, Elizabeth, I'd like you to take a moment. Uh-huh. I'd like you to close your eyes. My eyes are closed. And picture it. Yes. You're working at the reception desk at the Wiltshire County Hotel. You've left behind your life sweeping up elephant droppings at the circus. Yeah. And thanks to a cousin, you were able to secure this sweet, sweet job. Now, on this day, your keen eye earned you a promotion. Because it was all thanks to your time at the circus and all those elephant droppings that you knew to check the shoes. You see, you always notice people's shoes because you become self-conscious about yours you always want to know if there are any elephant droppings when you right. left work. So you were always checking your shoes. And so yes. it became a habit. You looked at other people's shoes and you noticed the same young man who'd breezed up to you earlier to the reception desk to check in. You're like, oh, I remember him. And you watched him walk across the lobby and his shoes, they look like they belong in your words to a tramp. So you're watching him go across the lobby and you're yeah. just like, some tramp shoes. Got some busted up. Feet. Some busted up brogues, right? <laughs> so it's not like the town tramp who inspired Dolly Parton's whole look. I don't mean that type of tramp. I yeah. mean like a hobo. Right, right? Yeah. right. Okay, so you watch this young man walk across the hotel lobby, nice blue suit on. You're like, suit looks nice. Shoes are busted up. Yeah. He has his own credit card. That's interesting. He could afford shoes, yet they're busted up. So these shoes look like this cat's been riding the rails. What's up with this? You know. Yeah. Of course, but in a British accent. All so, of that, yes. Being nosy, you look up his credit card information, the one he used to pay for his room. You call the credit card company. You say, excuse me, uh, I have this credit card here, and it seems to me a bit suspicious. They're like, what oh, is the name? wow. And they're like, oh, yes, that card has been stolen. You're like, oh, dearie. That's overstepping. So you hang <laughs> up with a credit card company. You get out your big scissors. Chop, uh-huh. chop, <laughs> and then you hop back on the phone. You're like, beep, boop, beep, boop, boop. Or actually, I'm sorry. You're rather like, shit. And then you phone the Bobbies. And you're like, uh-huh. hello, may I speak to a deputy inspector? And pickles, put me on the line with Pickles. <laughs> exactly. There's Flying Squad there. Where's DCI Pickles? He busy? So as Stephen Fry would later say about you, smart girl, always look at the shoes first. Yep. You had busted him outright. And yeah. the cops pointed out, that Sherlock Holmes once said the exact same thing. So in Stephen Fry's eyes, you are just as cunning as Sherlock Holmes. Yes. Good on you, Elizabeth. Thank you. Got that going for you. I do. Thank you. So as Stephen Fry is being interrogated, he still hasn't told the cops his real name. So they don't quite know who he is. They just know he's Edward Bridges or whatever. Right. So they have no database of DNA to check and the fingerprint data. They don't have anything. They can go, it's 1975. So Mm -hmm. what are they going to do? They have to get his identity out of him. Yeah. So they're like, well, we got to trick this kid somehow. So after they interrogate him, the cops are leaving the room. One of the cops sticks his head back in the room 
this is the even nicer cop. Mm -hmm. So even nicer cop tucks his head around the corner. He says, oh, Stephen, one thing I forgot to ask you. And Stephen looks up. Yes. And he's like, ah, (laughs) so it is Stephen then, huh? Stephen Fry? And he's like, oh, drat. (laughs) So he got busted on like the classic trick yeah. that people use like and he even compares it to the great escape which is one of my favorite steve mcqueen uh-huh. movies there's a suspicious german guard at the end once they've made the escape from the german prisoners camp they're about to get on a train and one of the guys the englishman he's disguised as a german and the german uh, guard is like checking you know paperwork for people getting on the train he's like oh yes he tells them oh yes good luck and the englishman's like oh thank you and they've been using german up to that point but when yeah. someone speaks english he like goes Just right back into with it. it yeah yes, it's that whole like that rote behavior yeah. So Stephen Fry, all people always respond to their real name. Right. But not me. I don't respond to my real name. No. Because I got trained if I heard my name, like nothing good's coming from this. So. <laughs> Just keep walking. Now, do you remember also, though, in The uh, Inglorious Bastards, when Michael yes. Fassbender holds up his three fingers? Oh, he, for counting. For one, counting. Because yeah. in, in like, Germany, they count with a thumb as number one and uh-huh. then index fingers two. And we count index finger one. Yeah. I just am always so tickled by those little cultural differences uh-huh. that people can draw out. So the cops play that on him yeah. just beautifully. The instinctual things. Yeah. So it's the nonchalant mistake that gets him. That's how he gets caught. It's first by wearing incongruous shoes with Mm -hmm. his credit card, and then secondly, being dumb enough to answer to his own name. (laughs) Young man's game stuff right there. (laughs) So once he's busted, Stephen Fry, he gets sent to prison. So this is while they have to sort out all the charges he's racked up, because he's been moving around the country. So they're like, oh, we got to find, they got to literally track down all the paperwork. It takes them months. Sure. So he goes off to prison, and that's where his young eyes lose their innocence. And I quote, The van stopped at a large set of gates. What's this place called? I asked the policeman cuffed to me. Didn't they tell you, son? It's called Puckle Church. Puckle Church, I said. Ah, Puckle Church. But that's so friendly. It sounds so sweet. Well, lad, said the policeman, getting to his feet. I don't think that's precisely the idea. (laughs) So Puckle Church is far from cute. And while he's inside, he earns himself a prison nickname. They start calling him the professor because he's smart as all Well, sure, yeah. I mean, the guy is an absolute genius. Totally. And he was as a kid. Like, it's ridiculous how... Yeah. Yeah. So, like, that doesn't just suddenly show up in your 20s. Like this, Yeah. I'm kind of jealous, though, because I definitely want to be called the professor if I was in prison. We can call you the professor. I already have a street name. Here at headquarters. Dizzy. Yeah, exactly. We're covered. Professor Dizzy. (laughs) So, while Stephen Fry's all locked up <laughs> professor yeah so he's he keeps his sense of humor about him and there's one favorite story he likes telling on the talk show circuit I, I hinted at it before which is and i quote i've said it before in interviews and it's been taken as a witty joke but life in prison was a breeze for me because at that point i'd spent most of my life at boarding school i didn't mean to suggest by that as was supposed that boarding schools are like prisons i meant that prisons are like boarding schools i knew how to tease authority enough to be popular with the inmates and tolerated by the screws i knew how to stay cheerful and think up diversion scams and pranks i knew ironically given my inability to do so in real boarding schools how to survive oh <laughs> So boarding school had given him a fully formed sense of life in prison. Yeah, like, interesting. You always hear about British boarding schools being hard. Like basically the British Navy and British boarding schools right. are two things I've never wanted to have anything <laughs> to do with. And he bears well, that and out. Well, he spent like his whole life up into that point creating all these like barricades and mm-hmm. safety measures in order to be him inside. So he's used to pushing everything down. Yeah. 
totally to have like a, a outside face to everything. Yeah. yeah, good call. Thank you. No, he uses his time inside to get a hold of himself, and he starts to figure out what it was that he really wanted to do with his life, who he really wanted to be, other than like you know stealing credit cards and buying blue suits. He's mm-hmm. like, what do I really want to be? He goes back to college. He then gets into Cambridge after going to a city college, and yeah. then that's where he meets Hugh Laurie, yep. and the rest, as they say, is history. Love it. So there you go. That is his time as a crimer. I had no idea that he was a crimer and part of the criming community. (laughs) One of our dudes. (laughs) He's a total rude dude. So what's our ridiculous takeaway, Elizabeth? Oh, wow. Um, I think what's interesting is that he was asked, would he have had his fame if he hadn't have gotten arrested? Mm -hmm. And you think about at that time that that would be the end of everything. Oh, now you've really blown it. You've, you know, done all these crimes. Now you're going to prison. Mm -hmm. You have no future. Yes. And instead, he just opens it wide out and does what everyone would dream of doing, of going to, you know, an elite college mm-hmm. and creating this life for himself that is based upon what he loves and what he's best at. And what he can give to the world. You know, yeah. he gets to be his full self. Yeah, and he, and gets... he, he meets his best friend. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, cool yeah. stuff. That's so, it. And also, I, I, the ridiculous takeaway for me, once again, thank you for asking You're so Elizabeth. Welcome. You're so welcome. Is, Prison can be a good thing. I like you will never hear that from my lips, but apparently, when it is designed to be rehabilitative, mm-hmm. and and I don't mean the British prison system, his view of prison, yeah. how he Stephen Fry went through prison, he used it as a time to better himself and then to and reemerge and to and rejoin society as a a version of himself that was not bitter or angry, but yeah. instead was like, how can I? become the you know somebody who can give to the community what he ends up giving all yeah, of us which exactly. is his beautiful parts of himself the best and brightest parts of himself and so in a lot of ways he used the darkness to reveal his light yeah so, good point i really liked that well done anyway that's all i got for you i love it thank you that was a good one <laughs> my pleasure you can find us online at ridiculous crime on both twitter and instagram twitter that's for the discourse instagram that's where we put up pictures of course now you can find uh hype pieces for both on Instagram and Twitter and you can always reach out to us at ridiculouscrime at gmail.com once again thanks for listening thank you Ridiculous Crime is hosted by Elizabeth Dutton and Zarin Burnett produced and edited by the Lori to our fry Dave Kustin Research is by Nice Cop Marissa Brown and Nicer Cop Andrea Song Charpentier. Our theme song is by Thomas the Doctor Lee and Travis the Chef Dutton. Executive producers are Ben Beertown on the Hill Bolin and Noel Winetown in the Hollow Brown. Ridiculous Crime. Say it one more time. Ridiculous Crime. Ridiculous Crime is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Infinity Presents, a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from The Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. 
Today's episode is brought to you by the American Society of Magical Negroes, a fresh satirical comedy about a secret society of magical black people starring Justice Smith, David Allen Greer, Ann Lee Bogan, and Nicole Byer. As an official selection of Sundance 2024, the American Society of Magical Negroes has been heralded by critics as an uproariously sharp-edged satire and a must-see. Only in theaters this Friday. Visit the American Society of Magical Negroes Film.com to get tickets now. There's plenty to celebrate in March and ex- Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free. <laughs> 